You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hi, folks, and welcome to another Domecast, episode number 37, I believe. This is Ben Brown from the Insider State Government News Service, and we're joined by a much bigger crew than we had last week. Uh, Colin Campbell, Craig Jarvis, and Lynn Bonner of the News and Observer, and Patrick Gannon, my boss at The Insider. Great show for you, even though it hasn't happened yet. We do have some solid topics this week, and we're going to get right to it with uh, Colin Campbell. Uh, Colin, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> your, your byline is on a, a story this week about multiple towns in North Carolina holding redos on their elections, the municipal elections from last year. And this is definitely one of those stories with the, you know, the when, where, what, why, and how questions. So... Colin, what in the world? Like, are we talking during the primaries and why? Let, let's start there with when and why and and who. Yeah, so these are the elections that you know you may recall from back in early November. Most of us have forgotten them by now because they were municipal elections, um, but they will be back on the ballot in five uh, different towns across the state uh, on March fifteenth during the primary. So, in addition to figuring out their presidential preference, some of the folks in these small towns are going to look at their ballot and say, wait a minute, I think I already voted for that. But anyway, what what essentially happened was the State Board of Elections uh, ordered the new elections this week after uh, reviewing some election challenges. These are all in uh, smaller communities. Uh, I think Lumberton's the biggest one, but there's also one in Pembroke, a Hosky up in the northeastern corner of the state, mm-hmm. uh, Benson in Johnston County, um, and uh, Trinity in Randolph Can- County. Basically, what happened to all these, they were extremely close election results. Some cases, they were even, I think there was one that was even tied. Other ones came down to two or three vote margin uh, between the, the first place and the second place finisher. Um, and that resulted in challenges for individual ballots in a lot of these cases. People saying these people, or, or this, in one case, I think in Trinity, was this one individual has moved out of the town mm-hmm. and she's still voting here. And she shouldn't still be voting here because she really lives in Moorhead City, I think it was. Right. And so they had to have a whole hearing to establish where does this person live. Uh, the Ahosky situation was interesting because it was actually a candidate. Uh, they have a ward system for their city council there uh, where people run in different districts. Um, and the incumbent uh, apparently owned a house in two districts. Uh, he was claiming residency mm-hmm. in the uh, the district he was representing. His opponent challenged that and said, no, you're actually – the place you lay your head at night is actually in this other district, and that was upheld. So now they'll have a new election, uh, and I think they actually only have two days to file, Wednesday and Thursday of this week, were the only options uh, if you wanted to jump in that race and, and perhaps uh, have a chance at the, the second go-round for the uh, Hosky Town Council. So did, did this materialize after individual voters – saw irregularities or sensed irregularities and wanted to challenge it themselves? or It seems to mostly be uh, initiated by the losing candidate or the, the candidate who is uh, losing by just a couple votes at the end. I think they sort of uh, seized the opportunity to say, you know, with this close of a margin, is there anything that could have gone wrong here to perhaps influence the results? And if so, can I challenge that and, and either get a recount or a, a complete uh, new election, uh, as was the case here? And there are a couple of things where it came down. I think I was, I was just looking at the uh, documentation for the Lumberton case, and that one came down to a couple of uh, – uh, single ballots where they were trying to figure out the voters' intent. Someone had uh, bubbled in uh, one of the candidates, and then they'd marked an X over the other candidate. And so there was this whole hearing to decide, uh-huh. what did that voter mean? Were they saying that they, they like this guy, and they bubbled him in, and they hate this other guy, so they crossed him out with an X? 
Or did they support both candidates and not know what they were doing? And mm. should that vote count at all? So, yeah, I, I covered this stuff fairly heavily on Baldhead Island many years ago when there was a situation where one vote ousted the incumbent mayor. And there were all kinds of questions that came up with the number of votes cast versus the number of people who actually lived on the island, which was a small population of like 100-some people, 200 people. And we get to learn about what domicile means. There were actually voter challenges initiated by the ousted mayor, like you were saying. And uh, the definition of domicile, what it means to choose where you live for elections purposes or for voting purposes, not always where you spend the lion's share of your time. And it can be really convoluted. So thanks for reporting on this so we know how all this stuff works. Um, are, are there any loose ends with this story? What, what, what has to happen still? Yeah, so the elections will all take place on March 15th, and that should hopefully solve the question of who gets to be on these uh, town boards. Uh, but the uh, Robisonian newspaper down in uh, Lumberton reported that uh, there's a state board of elections investigation going on into two of the candidates there in one of the contested races, that there have been allegations of vote buying. And uh, mm-hmm. there weren't a whole lot of details surrounding that that were released publicly, but vote apparently buying. there's a investigation going on, and uh, this could get even messier down okay. there. Okay, okay. Well, thanks for following this, and we can't wait to, uh, to read what's next. Next, uh, Craig Jarvis joining me now. And uh, offshore energy, obviously a high dollar topic, highly controversial as well with coastal towns worried they're going to see another deep water horizon if we start drilling off the coast. And then on the flip side, we've got groups saying it can be done in a clean and safe way. Um, uh, The conversation continued this week in North Carolina. Craig Jarvis, you've been reporting on it. Uh, What's happening on the offshore drilling front? Well, it's kind of been <clears throat> percolating at an increasing rate, I guess, uh, in terms of public awareness. They, these meetings happen, and uh, one by one, coastal communities have been uh, voting against it. They've been opposing it. Uh, to take a step back, what's happening is the feds are going are moving ahead with offshore energy exploration and development. Uh, in 2021, I think it is, there's going to be a lease sale awarded uh, through a bidding process uh, for the development of, or for exploration anyway, off the North Carolina coast. It'll be somewhere between the South Atlantic and Mid-Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Could be off our coast, might be up north or south. Uh, so that that's, you know, that, that process is moving forward. Like I said, uh, environmental groups, coastal communities, one by one, have been uh, passing off uh, resolutions in opposition to it. Um, they're concerned about protecting the economy that is there now, the recreation, fishing economy, uh, God forbid any kind of an accident that could happen. Um, Excuse me. Um, The other side of that is a group called the Consumer Energy Alliance that's been organizing these meetings, they say, to kind of counter the voice of the the opposition uh, by saying the uh, the risk is pretty low, the payoff is great. Uh, this is a pro-drilling group. It's not a. It's not a, a uh, you know down the middle sort of group. Uh, the Consumer mm-hmm. Energy Alliance. What they mean by consumer is the trucking industry, the construction industry, okay. people who can who consume uh, a power or fuel in that way. Um, um, that group has been working with the governor's coalition. That's also there's a couple of two or three intertangled groups that are promoting offshore drilling. Uh, basically, um, they promise big benefits, like something like over a few uh, matter of some decades, like fifty thousand, fifty-five thousand jobs would be created, four billion dollars in new state revenue. Uh, environmentalists uh, c- contracted for a study that, uh, that disputes that and says that it's nowhere near uh, the, 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 that kind of benefit. So that's really not a settled question. Meanwhile, uh, this uh, meeting I went to uh, this week in Raleigh, hosted by that group. Uh, Representative Mike Hager was there, and he sort of succinctly said, this is about 
<clears throat> jobs for this in the state. That when he was elected, he ran to get jobs because the the if Rutherford the area he represents is, had an extremely high uh, unemployment rate, and uh, he says that uh, we owe it to taxpayers to explore and find out. So okay. Uh, it was a civil discussion, but neither side really uh, budged. You know, they're not going to be. This sort of sets the stage as this process goes a little farther down the line. Um, and it was a series of meetings, you said? Was yeah. Was multiple states? Or? Yeah, exactly. Uh, five, four states, I guess. This was the fourth and last. Virginia, Georgia, and uh, South Carolina, they uh, organized these meetings as well. Uh, and that's sort of that's independent of the official federal hearing process that's taking public comment uh, and and getting to the point where they will call for and award a, a bid. So, so in the Consumer Energy Alliance, obviously the the pro drilling side, was there was there an opposition contingent there? You mean op- opposing them? Right. Yeah, actually, they. Uh, I don't know what they've done in past episodes. I think it's been a little more just just the Consumer Energy Alliance. They told me that a lot of technical questions came up, so they had somebody from the American Petroleum Institute there, but they also had the uh, representative of the Southern Environmental Law Center there, so and a wind energy person and somebody from the federal agency that's overseeing this whole thing. Okay. So it was a pretty balanced discussion, and. Uh, like I said, nobody got mad. They just had each other. They just kind of civilly laid out the laid out the arguments, and there was a little uh, uh, a little bit of frustration in the audience. There were about a hundred people there that uh, you know had various interests, but uh, a couple people stood up and just kind of were arguing against drilling at all, and on in a very emotional level. But for the most part, it was just a, a discussion that didn't really count for much sure. other than talking about it okay so a lot of awareness and i, I think think i also saw on the news this week that curie beach actually a, a beach town i used to cover in new hanover county um has opposed offshore drilling and in addition to seismic testing they joined a number of towns on the coast to pass these resolutions like you were alluding to earlier and i know late last year also that the uh, petroleum council started putting out advertisements in radio and print on how offshore drilling is going to be a, a jobs powerhouse and it can raise you know, loads of cash for the state if if we have revenue sharing agreements, which I think is something that the governor's alluded to, uh, remains controversial, absolutely. Uh, Craig Jarvis, thanks for joining us. Sure. And we are going to take a break. Be right back. In 2016, when you go to the polls, bring your passion and be sure to bring a photo ID. You see, this election, you'll be asked to show an acceptable photo ID at the polls. If you don't have an ID or if you're unable to obtain one, there are still options for voting. There are lots of acceptable IDs. But only one you. This election, be seen, be heard. For information on exceptions or for help getting a free ID, visit voterid.nc.gov or call 866-522-4723. We're back here on the Domecast. Ben Brown from the Insider State Government News Service, and I'm joined now by Lynn Bonner of the News and Observer. Lynn, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. So McCrory's task force, Governor Pat McCrory's task force on mental health and criminal justice, uh, you've had your eye on it. What's coming up with that? And anything for the for the short session coming up in April? Kind of talk us through what's what's going on. Yeah, this uh, this task force has been meeting for a while. It's a lot of uh, big names um, on the criminal justice side, you know, uh, attorneys and, and DAs and um people involved with the prison system and some people involved with mental health. Uh, a couple of legislators, um, Chief Justice Martin's on it and uh, Rick Brazier, their co-chairs. And they've been meeting for months and they've been looking at um, 
sort of how to improve the um, mental health system. Uh, and what's new is that they're also looking at um, mental health and addictions and connection with uh, criminal justice, juvenile justice, and prisons. A lot of what they've divided up into three work groups, and they this week they had just two dozen uh, recommendations, huge things like improving housing and okay. um, uh, you know making sure that there are mental health resources throughout the state. A lot of that is, we've heard before, um, the history of mental health, I've been cover, writing about this for, for years now, but, you know, a lot of this stuff came up in 2000, and mm-hmm. the history of, you know, mental health service and changes here has been one largely of uh, collapse and overhaul and, and right. failures. Um, what I found new is this uh, discussion of addictions and um, and alcohol treatment and how it relates to people who are uh, incarcerated, and some suggestions for uh, treatment and recovery while people are in prison or jail. So they have a huge number of recommendations. The issue is now sort of trimming it down to see you sure. know, what they're going to push for in the short session. And this was supposed to be a time-limited task force, but uh, Brazier said that you know they might go longer. He would might want it to go longer and sort of get things ready for recommendations for the long session as well. Talk to another member of the task force, somebody writing out this for Sunday Dumb, and he said he was wondering whether any of this stuff was going to get done. What they were told that going in as they were going to need these work groups that they had, you know, what their recommendations had to be revenue neutral. Um, they weren't allowed to talk about uh, Medicaid expansion. And at this meeting, uh, somebody asked the governor, hey, uh, so what about Medicaid expansion? He basically said, uh, no. Um, so um, there are big questions going into the short session about exactly what's going to get done, if anything, um, and whether there would be anything significant tackled in the next couple months. So, so with these recommendations, I mean, obviously, this is a huge historic issue, no easy answers, but is, does it seem like their approach is going to be more of a low-hanging fruit kind of thing, or is it we know what these big challenges are and we have to devise ways to get to the bottom of it? Or? It's hard to tell. Uh, Brazier said that he's been meeting with legislators and saying, well, you know, here's what we're doing and kind of gauging their interest and seeing what they'll be willing to go along with and, and what they can get through. But some of the things here are huge and are we're going to cost money and you know Patrick's going to talk about teacher raises and with money already being promised uh there's a question about okay well mental health where does this where does this rank mm-hmm. um so that's it that's a big question we'll be watching for so the rest gonna, of the year we're not going to solve this all in the short session coming no, up no that's no. a guarantee but you'll have something in uh under the dome on sunday that's that's right okay we'll look for that and uh thanks lynn Pat Gannon of The Insider joining me now. Teacher pay has been a huge issue on the radar for a few legislative sessions now. Not not that it's never been a talking point before, but certainly a high mark in the last couple sessions. And there's, of course, been talk about what shape that might take in the coming session. Uh, Pat, what's up with that? Something came up this week about that. Yeah, it was on the same day of the mental health meeting that uh, Lynn just talked about. It was the first time I'd covered the governor's education cabinet, probably because Lynn has been to most of those other meetings. and um, they talked about um, lots of they talked the, the main point of the discussion was to talk about trying to, by the year 2025, ensure that 67 percent of working age adults in North Carolina have some sort of post high school 
education or training. That's either, you know, some sort of college degree or some sort of training and a particular skill that will help them meet the demands of the workforce. And that's the whole uh, reason for this uh, kind of goal, the 67% goal, is to ensure that North Carolina has a workforce to, to meet demands of the future. Um, and so um, at that meeting, there was a discussion about what are some of the roadblocks or barriers to allowing this to happen and and um you know ensuring good teachers was one of was one of those things so representative craig horn who's kind of a main uh, education person in the house uh house republican from union county uh said that he he believed and this was to reporters after the meeting but he said that he believed across the board raises for teachers this year and they didn't get them last year i think lynn if, correct me if i'm wrong they got the same uh 800 Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. 750. Um, And um, so he said he believed across the board raises for teachers would be a, quote, top of the fold topic in this year's legislative session. Uh, We all know um, that the governor has um, laid his case for rewarding success, the most successful teachers, either with additional responsibilities or um, some some type of leadership role. And the governor did uh, say that the other day after Representative Horn uh, made his comments that he, you know, he, he, he wouldn't. We asked him five different ways whether he'd support across the board raises. And he and he kept going back to, you know, I support rewarding the best teachers. So sure. we don't know yeah. what's going to happen with that. Um, we also don't know how much money is going to be available for raises. You know, and then there's state employees, just right, state employees who do things other than teach. Will they get raises this year? And that's going to be a huge issue as the budget process unfolds uh, in this session. Did, did they did they throw out any figures of what across the board raises might cost? I know that varies by percent, but I mean, did they get into that at all? Or? Um, they didn't get into that kind of detail there. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure, I can't remember off the top of my head what, you know, a 1% raise uh, amounts to. It's a lot of money, you know, especially if you're talking about state employees as a whole, as opposed to just teachers. As I was thinking about this issue of uh, performance pay, essentially, there was something in the State Board of Education meeting last time that showed that teachers who are not as accomplished as some of their peers go to uh, low-performing schools. And I'm wondering whether if you're going to base salary increases on teacher performance, whether that might exacerbate a problem with teachers with the lower ratings going to low-performing schools, did did McCrory address that at all? Or does he didn't. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just curious. That's. I'm sure there are many pros and cons to, to every part of this issue, and we're probably going to hear a lot of them. Yeah. This was session. part of his was part of his plan to have to induce teachers to go to hard-to-staff schools with more money? I think so. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and I've heard that from other legislative leaders, too, and I'm sure we're going to hear more uh, press conferences coming up to April. Um, if it's going to be a, what do you say, a top-of-the-fold issue for the short session? Yeah. That's well, press conferences, hooray. Yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> so um, we'll be right back. We're going to take a break, and we're going to be uh, doing our headliners of the week and playing everybody's favorite song. So you smash your thumb with a hammer. Ouch! You race to the hospital. And they ask, what medications are you taking? Thankfully, in your wallet is a list with your medications on it. Wife went to safemedication.com, downloaded the free template, and wow, that pink pill has a real name. To create your own medication list, visit safemedication.com or talk with your hospital pharmacist. Brought to you by the American Society of Health System Pharmacists.
right, we're back in the Domecast, and now it's time for... Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Headliner of the week. All right, so we've played that for uh, two consecutive episodes. I hope our special Domecast listeners are happy. We upset uh, some listeners by not playing that a couple weeks ago. Uh, Headliners of the week. Pat Gannon, 45 seconds. Who you got? I'm just going to go because I couldn't think of anybody better uh, with Mother Nature. Uh, We're sitting here recording this on a Thursday because we're worried that Friday we won't be able to make it in or we'll be stuck on the roadway somewhere, as happened a year or so ago with that huge... Was that a year ago, I think? With that huge storm. So just for uh, people that that might be listening to this Domecast a year from now, just to give them some sort of sense of what was going on during this episode, um, we, we may or may not see snow. Uh, this weekend, so Mother Nature. Mother Nature in the hat. We're going to go now to Lynn Bonner, 45 seconds. Who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to pick the Carolina Panthers, and here's the political connection. Uh, They induce (laughs) all of these bets between state officials and counterparts in other states, and we see plenty of references to Cheerwine and Bojangles and Krispy Kreme, of course, but um, Elaine Marshall bets a type of vodka made in... Eastern North Carolina made of sweet potatoes. So since I learned of this Covington vodka through these bets and a connection by connection through the Panthers, I'm going to pick the Carolina Panthers. The Carolina Panthers with a great argument. Colin Campbell, you're up next. 45 seconds. Who is your headline of the week? I'm going with Deborah Ross, the Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate. She picked up some big endorsements this week, most notably from the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, which doesn't typically endorse in a race where there's still a Democratic primary to be had. There's still three, I guess technically four, uh, Democratic candidates vying for that nomination, but they've already thrown all their weight and their fundraising muscle behind Deborah Ross, which suggests that she's definitely the the pick of the national uh, Democratic establishment. Uh, Hard to tell exactly what that means that they've jumped in on her and not so many other uh, races around the country, but uh, certainly uh, good news for her campaign and uh, gives her some momentum going into the March primaries. All right, another solid case you make. That means three names in the hat so far. We're going to round out with uh, number four, Craig Jarvis. Who you got? Who's your headliner of the week? Well, I'm kind of sheepishly going to go with uh, the obvious Donald Trump, the unstoppable, apparently Donald Trump uh, PPP poll came out yesterday, which was Wednesday, saying he's gained among North Carolina voters surveyed five percentage points. Uh, he leads... Cruz, uh, 38% to 16%. Uh, Rubio comes in 11%. Carson at 8%. So he's sitting uh, pretty pretty well, although I just a little while ago checked a Civitas poll that came out this morning, Thursday. Uh, Trump's still ahead, but it's uh, within the margin of error uh, with Cruz, so they're calling that one a toss-up. So we don't know. I mean, there's a lot of shortcomings about polls. It's not the same thing as how people are going to vote. But uh, for right now, Trump gets the uh, he's still riding that wave. Donald Trump, Deborah Ross, the Carolina Panthers and Mother Nature in reverse order that we heard them. Um, This is tough, but I think Lynn Bonner made a very fantastic creative argument. Can can we go out with some audio of our our governor uh, telling us to keep pounding? Keep pounding, Lynn. (laughs) So the Carolina Panthers headliner of the week. We will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. And again, uh, offer stands. If you guys think of any good uh, uh, segment ideas or anything like that for the Domecast, again, within reason, we got to behave. We're also full-time reporters. So, um, but, but hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Ben Brown Media. Colin, what's your handle? At Raleigh Reporter. At Craig underscore N-A-N-D-O. At Lynn underscore Bonner. At Lynn underscore Bonner. 
Pat underscore NC Insider. You can hit us all up on Twitter, send us your ideas, or tell us anything you want. Just be friendly. We'll see you guys next week. Keep pounding. Go Panthers. Keep pounding. Oh. <laughs> You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.